Hey, everyone. ESG Energize is sponsored by our friends at mCloud. Their solutions help companies maximize production, automate operations, and optimize predictive maintenance. And on the heels of the Inflation Reduction Act, their emissions management solution is so incredibly relevant. So I would encourage you all to go check them out, mcloud.corp, to learn more. Welcome to ESG Energized, where we discuss the latest developments in the environmental, social, and governance arena that are impacting the energy industry today. Here are your hosts, Delfina Govia. My name is Delfina Govia, and many of you know me as a partner at Veritas Total Solutions, an innovative management consulting firm where I lead the ESG practice alongside my ETRM colleagues. Listeners, I know that the majority of you are well-educated, well-traveled, and highly successful. That's my audience. But I bet if I took a poll and asked you if you knew a social scientist or even what a social scientist did, that most of you would just say no. Well, you're about to find out and how important this professional discipline is to ESG. Dean Slocum, president of Acorn International, welcome to the ESG Energized podcast. Thanks, Delphine. It's a pleasure to be here. I am very pleased to have you here because you're going to talk about a topic that is near and dear to my heart and that I haven't really delved into as deeply with uh, anybody else, either on this podcast or outside of this podcast. And I think that you're going to provide some tremendous insight to my listeners. So could you start by telling me who is Acorn International and what do you focus on? Sure, yeah. So we're, we're a uh, consulting firm. Uh, and we're a consulting firm of uh, really it's just top social scientists that work uh, with the energy, mining, and investment industry worldwide in some of the furthest corners of the world, but also with the energy transition more and more back here in the U.S. where those companies have repatriated the, the, the mechanisms that they've used to manage societal and community risks back here in the U.S. Ah, okay. And so you have been taken to many corners of the earth, has that been in working with all sectors that you mentioned, energy, mining, and investment? Yeah, so our clients are represent the, the, most of the world's largest energy companies, most of the world's largest mining companies, and many large investors engage us just on, on a, a master services agreement so that when they are going into a new country, they're going into a new area, or when they're operating in an area that's high or substantive risk from a social or community standpoint, they're ready to address that kind of risk just like they would engineering risk or financial risk or others. Ah, that is extremely interesting. I recently had an opportunity to visit with a group of chief risk officers and they are having some very earnest conversations about how exactly they should address that mm -hmm. within their, their risk programs for their organizations. So what would you say are, for, you're the social scientists, from a social scientist's perspective, what do you say are the top three challenges in this area that you're seeing? I think first and foremost, we've all heard a lot about ESG, right? It's become a very overly common <laughs> used term. Um, 
the S and the SG, you know, it's the middle letter, it's the middle child, right? Just like any middle child, it's misunderstood. It's, <laughs> it's not, you know, we don't have language to, to, to know how to behave around ESG. People's eyes glaze over. Um, so I, I could talk about that a bit. So that's the key is understanding the S and ESG is really critical. And understanding it from a business risk standpoint. The second thing that's really critical is the energy transition, um, which of course isn't just affecting the energy industry, it's affecting mining with transition minerals, it's affecting finance and others. So really uh, helping not just follow and support that industry, but really helping being preeminent and drive success and progress in the energy transition. That's, that's critical. So making, making whatever investments we're making actually be impactful. Right. And sustainable. Right. And, and, and responsive to the vision of where we need to go. Ah, so. say more about that. Um, I, mean, I think companies are doing a great job setting their climate action plans and their, their ESG strategies. But, um, you know, we're learning from like COP27 this, this week, right? Yes. We're learning from that in COP27, if I can have an aside. Is Please. It, COP27 is it's interesting this year. It's very different because of the... Um, Allah Abdul um, uh, Fatah, mm -hmm. uh, yep. the gentleman who's who's uh, on a hunger strike right now, uh, they're drawing drawing the human rights element into the future of how we address climate and ESG decision making. So that's that's a you know I think that we need to companies are really need to when they look at their climate strategies when they look at their ESG strategies really take that whole S piece into consideration because. For it to be a sustainable solution, to have the vision that I talked about, mm -hmm. that that uh, the social aspects, the social risk elements of energy transition need to be taken into consideration and baked into that strategy. So before we go, you answer the first question I posed, which was around what are the top three challenges. Could we stay on the topic of the S in ESG for just a minute? Sure. And talk to me a little bit about how you are helping organizations develop their social strategy within ESG. And if you have any examples that you might be able to share with my listeners so that mm -hmm. they, could get, they can really get an understanding. Stories give us a real firm understanding of what we need to accomplish. Sure, yeah. I'll give you two examples. One is um, we're working with some investors. Of, so we're working at the bank, commercial bank, and, um, and, a, and a chemical company here in, in Houston to help them with their ESG strategies. But if they, if, there are a lot of great consultants out there that can address ESG. We're focused on the S, you know, getting getting S in. So companies that really want to get that S piece, there a lot of them are coming to us to really say, okay, well, we want we want to apply good science, good risk management, understanding and capabilities to the S piece. So we're working with them to really bring that S forward in their ESG strategy, and not only to understand it from a from a business risk standpoint, but to put systems in place to manage that S risk, as I said, just like you would engineering, finance, legal risks, uh, just as rigorously as a scientist, we're learning how to do that. And then also, very importantly, and you and I talked about this earlier, to measure it, right? To put metrics in place where you can measure progress and lack of progress and risk for the social element of ESG and, what it, and, what, and how it's material to your company. I think that the reason why this conversation is so interesting to me personally is 
I believe that what you are offering and what you're bringing to your clients is to your to what you just said the scientific approach to managing the s mm. and i don't know that it, it is widely understood that this does require a scientific approach an engineering approach where it must be structured measured managed monitored uh built into a de-risking strategy mm, right. as opposed to just uh, a, a more softer skill, not that soft skills aren't warranted, but this isn't social work. This isn't philanthropy. Yeah. There's something far more uh, deep and requires expertise, specific expertise, to be able to help organizations advance. Am, am I getting that you've right? Said it, yeah, you've said it very well, and it and it, it, it you know it encourages me to ask actually see if I could share a couple more examples because I love I love the work we're doing. The clients have really been just it's tremendous the work that they've entrusted us to, and it's fascinating some of these things. So, uh, so we talked about transition energy, uh, the energy transition, and, and the, the the role of mining in that with transition metal, minerals. So we're working on two projects, one in Brazil, one in here in the U.S. that have both projects that are fully complying with the law, right? In both cases, the shareholders have come to us and said, yeah, we're complying with the law, but we're really, we recognize that there's things beyond the law that could just, in one case, stop this project in Brazil, you know, interrupt our operations and our ability to expand. And two, in the case in the U.S., this is a new project being, a new, new mine being developed that could stop this project. And they're all related to community engagement. In Brazil, the case is traditional people who live in the Amazon, adjacent to this mine, who have uh, been been using the services of the forest, collecting nuts, you know, mine, uh, hunting, etc., and are concerned. You know, and they want to know what's going on. In in the U.S., it's a community that's <clears throat> in a mining area of this state, but still they have you know, the significant concerns about how this mine's gonna be developed, how much traffic, what's the water gonna be like, how are they gonna find jobs for the people? If, if people come in from outside or, or across the border for jobs, how's that gonna impact the future of their community? And these are legitimate concerns that the mining companies had the full legal right to go ahead and develop it, but in both cases, they're recognizing, now we need to take, we need to be a little bit more careful and really look at our business risk in a way that we integrate these social and community issues into them and de-risk our projects to make them sustainable and profitable. So if I could comment and extrapolate just one step further and tell me if I'm following you, because uh, I don't always get it right, Dean, <laughs> is that number one, compliance is not enough. Uh, you have to then take a look at the risk involved and risk mitigation, and then you can make the leap to sustainability. Yeah, and I think you know it's no surprise that compliance isn't enough. We've known that 15, 20 years. You know, we're beyond that. Um, I think I think where the where the energy transition is taking us is to really appreciate how social issues and a company's success in managing relationships and potential risks related to communities and their stakeholders, how that's integral to making these projects a success. And the fact that it's not just an issue that our eyes glaze over and we say, 
we can't control it, so we just hope for the best. No, you can't control it. You can manage it. You can understand it, pull it apart, and look at it as a as an element of your risk portfolio, and and uh, try to make good business decisions around it if you treat it, you know, in a in a in a smart way. Right to your point. Not just you can, but you should. And you need to. Yeah. You need to. Yeah. So let me then come back to what was the third of your top three challenges that you have recognized in this space? Yeah, two initials, EJ, environmental justice. Ah. So we've all heard a lot about that too, but it's, and again, it's maybe like social, it's not something that's all that well understood. So um, you're gonna explain that to my listeners, right? Yeah, I will, and I'll, I'll lead into it with a with a project that I can kind of introduce the project, talk about EJ, and then go back to the project to talk about it. So one of the, the, the largest energy companies in the world uh, like many companies, is looking at carbon capture, utilization, storage projects here in the U.S. And they're recognizing that if these projects are going to succeed on a massively scaled-up scale, they need to remove carbon from the atmosphere on a global level. They need to improve air quality for communities and their health on a regional level. But they also need to develop to deliver community development and improve the lives of people on the local level in those host communities. And they don't get all three of those right, they're not gonna be successful projects. And it's that third piece that's not often considered because it's, it's hard to measure, it's hard to talk about, we don't always have the right systems or the right dialogues in place. So, um, so we're working that now in two Gulf Coast states and now we're expanding actually for the same company into I think 12 other states. So give um, us an example of so that's an that's a, an example a general example of who you're working with. Can you yeah. give us anything more specific on how they're actually executing? Yeah, yeah, and this is I will and I'll, I'll introduce the why EJ is important to this. Okay. So the communities in which these projects are being developed are uh, the communities where uh, there are there's hardware there's oil and gas infrastructure in them. The, you know, Baytime. Baytown, Texas, and you know Plaquemine, Paris, uh, Louisiana, where um, there is there are oil and gas infrastructure that's being converted to instead of take carbon out of the ground, put it back into the ground. But you're using wells and pipelines and pumps. The same technology the oil and gas industry has used very successfully over the years is now being deployed to to turn this the, to turn the the, um, the pipelines around. But these same communities that have been uh, uh, dealing with the impacts of oil and gas activities, the air pollution, the water discharges, um, and traffic, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the same communities that are now going to be dealing with similar uh, impacts of the transition of the of the carbon capture. Now, yes, they get global benefits of of climate reduction. They get regional benefits of air production. But these communities, uh, the environmental justice that the definition is focused on communities that have been uh, that have been uh, adopting the not adopting but but um, uh, having the burden an undue burden level of burden of environmental impact much more than other communities because of where they're located because of the facility so you have a lot of communities of color in some of these communities um, you have People with uh, low socioeconomic status and and uh, uh, you know difficulty uh, finding jobs, etc. You know, the schools often tend to to have um, 
lower achievement rates and the, the health stats that we look at show more health problems in these communities. And that, that just becomes exacerbated more and more investment that goes into these communities unless there's a turnaround, unless there's a recognition that the industry needs to do this differently in the, in the government that's funding the industry to do these projects. So are you suggesting that in some of these cases that our government and whoever the corporation is are actually working together in conjunction. Yeah, absolutely. So the U.S. Department of Energy has has issued tens of millions of dollars of grants to encourage environmental sorry to encourage uh, climate. Uh, carbon capture and utilization or other clean energy yes. projects to try to advance that technology and companies you know Chevron Exxon Shell they're all you know taking advantage of those those grants and and small innovative country companies as well um, but along with that financing DUE has attached some conditions one is doing environmental justice plans prior wow. to getting that grant second is community development plans that uh, that are linked with workforce development plans for the local workforce lo people in those affected communities, and then third, they have if 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 it's um, if it's applicable, Native American tribal engagement plans. Aha! Uh -huh. So here's a might be a silly question to you, but I'm I really want to know. <laughs> no silly questions. Um, so I'm encouraged to have a discussion around environmental justice where we're talking about here at home in the United States. Personally, I am uh, accustomed to having those discussions more on, a, on an, a global basis, having in my career worked in and seen my colleagues work in some remote areas of the globe, right? right? And so I do know as any listeners of my podcast know, I'm always uh, championing the oil and gas industry that we are very conscious about the impact that we have on local communities, when mm -hmm. we, especially when we go into third world countries, uh, that we have to respect their, their local communities and their cultures. Do you see, when you're, ta when you're tackling the topic of environmental justice, do you see vast differences or a lot of similarities when we're talking about what we're doing here at home in the United States versus in third world countries around the world. Because I'm, I'm understanding that ACORN has worked in just about every part of the globe, am I correct? You are, yeah, we're working right today. We've got pro active projects in 14 countries. Wow. And they're not, they're not Europe or you know, <laughs> North America. It's, it's really, you know, it's, it's the, okay. the most developing of the developing world where there are resources that need to be developed responsibly and companies that are responsible that are, are trying to develop those. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the, the term environmental justice is typically a US term. Yeah. Um, same thing in other countries, it's just, it's just not called environmental justice. It's, it's, it's a little bit, it's got a little bit different flavor. But when company, oil company X is operating in African country Y, they are very often applying rigorous standards that are applied by, let's say, the International Finance Corporation, part of the World Bank, yeah. to say this is how you will operate in a country where there are no law, n not there are not stringent laws that dictate 
how you will behave in terms of protecting the environment in the communities in which you're operating. Uh, so those, and those standards haven't typically been applied in the US because we have strong laws. About ah. five years ago, there was a shift in that, and there's a, a set of standards that are akin to the IFC performance standard called the Equator Principles, that 80% of the world's financing power by private banks subscribe to these Equator Principles. In, 2000, in the year 2000 and leading up to that, the Equator Principles became applicable to the US and Europe, as well as the developing world. And that's really forced a shift on on companies and banks to focus on human rights, indigenous consultation, good, solid, meaningful engagement with, with host communities, climate risk, things like, things that, that comp again, company X operating in country Y always did over the last 20 years, but not in the US. Now that's being repatriated into the US and we're seeing much more of that. And I think the energy transition in the Department of Energy's, for example, the Department of Energy's intercession in that and, and conditions under which we're, they're willing to provide grants um, has accelerated that. I'm gonna ask you to take one quick step backwards and, not backwards, back, hmm. rewind just a little bit. And you mentioned equator principles. Can you elaborate on that for me, please? Yeah, the equator principles are a set of standards that were adopted by uh, private banks. Um, I'm gonna say 15 years ago, I may be wrong on that, but, but based on the realization that we are lending money to big projects, or little projects, but we're lending money to projects, and we as, a, we as banks recognize that there are things that impact our return on investment, right? They might be you don't have adequate your own adequate capital, collateral capital, you don't have adequate capacity in your team, you've got a difficult reservoir if you're an oil gas company or whatever. But more and more what they started to see is, you know what, our, 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 our loans are more and more often failing, not because of a technical issue or a legal issue, but because of a social issue because of the blowback from a community that hasn't been consulted up front, because of the, the, the rights that have been um, allegedly transgressed of, of local people or traditional people who are impacted by these projects. And so they said, look, we need to put our own standards in place to, we'll say self-govern, but to help us kind of filter those projects, understand what those risks are up front before we lend money. We'll follow these, we'll commit, sign on to these standards, and we'll commit to, the, to follow them to make sure that any project we lend money to as signatories of the equator principles follows these standards. Ah, and so you could, you could say that every organization is going to be keenly attuned to this because everybody wants to, to reduce their cost of funding, right? Yep. Or at least get funded. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, we're, so we're working now with a company that's building, it's a fascinating company, a great, great, great company, what they're doing. So they're building kind of peak, carbon neutral peak power stations here in the Houston area. And they, you know, they were born, well, they were, they were um, operating during Superstorm Uri, uh -huh. and they continued to produce during URI because of the technologies, right? So, but they are scaling up because it's a very successful product. They're scaling up and they need capital to do that. The lenders have said, great, love your product, love your market, we believe in it. You need to meet the equator principles. So the company has brought us in to evaluate 
where they conform with the creative principles and where they don't to help them put systems in place to bring them up to standards so they can get that financing released. When you're having your, your consultative uh, engagements with your clients and you're helping them inform or create, you can correct me, Dean, exactly what you, how you guys engage, either to create or inform their ESG strategy, are you specifically helping them understand the impact of the S on the G as well as the E? Has that come up at all? It has. It's oftentimes the line between S and G is blurred. Particularly you get, let's talk about diversity and equity, right? DEI. Um, some companies will consider that, uh, most companies will consider that a governance issue. More and more companies that come to us are saying, oh, we think it's an S issue. We're not just, so some companies will just look at S as a, their employees, right? And it's fine. You know, that's what, how S is material to them. Um, but I think more and more companies are saying, we need to get DEI right. We need to look at it as a social issue, not just as a governance issue. Governance as well, of course. But Yeah, I see. Yeah. I see that. It kind of, it, it kind of. Uh, crosses both, yeah. right? Yeah. And being able to understand how that all comes together. Yeah, that works and together. You know, to us it doesn't matter whether you put it under the S bucket or G bucket, just understand it and understand what it means to your organization, how it's material to you, and then how to manage it. And if you put the S label on it, don't let, you know, don't let your, <laughs> your board members or your, you know, your, your executive team's eyes glaze over and say, ah, that's one of those social issues we can't really control it. You can. You can understand it and control it. Fantastic. So if we had to bring this all together, boil it all down, and there was one message that you, Dean Slocum, could deliver to the world, what would it be? I guess I'd say I'm fascinated by the energy transition. It's critical to where, we're, where we've got to go. Um, in terms of climate, in terms of environment, in terms of biodiversity, but also just in terms of life on Earth and, and our ability to, you know, to live well, um, all communities, not just those of us who are fortunate enough to live in good places, uh, you know, yeah. live, live good lives. Um, but for that energy transition to work, it's got to really deliver on three, three levels. One, it's got to have atmospheric benefits uh, for the climate. It's got to have air quality and public health benefits for the, for the region, but it's got to deliver benefits to the host communities for which for decades have been unfairly, you know, bearing the burden of environmental and um, social impact from from industrial activities. One last question: mm -hmm. What are the phone calls that you get that excite you? <laughs> I, th I think one of the phone calls we get that most excite me is it's, it's very often on Monday afternoons, we'll get a call saying, well, we sat down in our ops meeting, uh, Monday morning ops meeting, and you know this week is Tanzania. So do you have people in Tanzania that can be on the ground on Thursday? <laughs> and the answer and is? Oftentimes, yeah. You know, we have, we have partnerships in all these countries. So we have partnerships in 90 countries. Not, again, not Europe, but, but in the Tanzanias of the world, right? And um, we spent a lot of time vetting them and understanding them and, tr and helping to not train them, but develop their capacity and, and working with them. And so when we get those calls, we hope we're ready to be able to deploy, even if it's not sending one of our people over there. 
So you just said something that I think is absolutely critical, which is similarly to if you want to come into the oil and gas industry, my listeners are probably tired of me saying this, but if you want to come play in my industry, you better understand my industry. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if you want to be able to provide value into a community, you better understand that community. Yeah, you need to understand both. And you need to understand the, the interrelationship, right? Because yeah. it's, it's got to be, you need to understand the communities. But you need to have that business lens, uh, to be fair. And that doesn't mean dropping the lens of, of deep caring and understanding for what the community is going through. You've got to have that in our line of work, right? Right. But if it doesn't really help our clients if we don't also have that lens of what they need to get out of the equation and how to put those two sides together to get common success or sh Win -wins. what we say shared value. Shared yeah. value. Fantastic. Dean, I knew that this was going to be great. Thank you so very much. No, it's a pleasure how to talk can, to you. How can we have people uh, access more information? Your website, could you tell everybody? www.acornintllc.com. And um, yeah, you'll find all the information you need there. And you know, I'd be happy to, to happy have more conversations, not just if your Monday morning uh, ops meeting says Tanzania, you know, whatever your issue is. Fantastic. We were gonna, we're going to put that in the show notes for you to access. And also in the show notes, there will be access to a question that I'm asking my listeners to answer. So you get some, some swag if you answer that question as well. Cool. Dean Slocum, please promise me you'll come back on this show at some point. Delphine, it's a pleasure, and I'd be happy to. Okay, thank you. Cheers. Join us again next week on the ESG Energized Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.